we do, if you are not uh, familiar with Wilderness Hills Church, we believe on going as deep as possible with our hearts and then as deep as possible with our minds. And that's the balance. We want to worship God with all of our heart and get passionate and, you know, let God work on our emotions. And that's what we do in our worship celebration time. And then we want to worship God with our minds. And that means we think. And that means sometimes we, we tackle issues that maybe are not all that easy uh, to tackle. And we think maybe new thoughts. So we're going to wrestle with this text here this morning. We're going to move forward a whole three verses. Luke chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. And I want to entitle this, uh, A Pigeon, A Lion, and Deep Magic. For reasons that I hope will become clear shortly. A Pigeon, A Lion, and Deep Magic. It says in the TNIV version, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons are supposed to be sacrificed after the, your, your, the birth of your firstborn male. Uh, let's just pray here that Lord, the Lord will anoint this message. Father, in Jesus' name, anoint this message. Let it have your authority, not mine. Uh, Lord, open up our minds and open up our hearts to receive from you. And God, I use this message to purify our perception of you, our understanding of you, our perception of ourselves and understanding of ourselves and what on earth is going on, the kingdom that we're involved in, Lord. Help us to walk out of here more saturated with the kingdom than we were when we came, Lord. But this is all the job of the Holy Spirit, so we surrender that over to him and ask, Lord, that you'd have your way here and now in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. The thrust of these three verses here is to really highlight that Mary and Joseph were obedient uh, servants of God by Old Testament standards. They did everything the angel and that the law required of them. Uh, on the eighth day, they circumcised uh, their child, Jesus. And that's what was required of the law. Circumcision was uh, the sign of the covenant, the reminder of the covenant in the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, God's covenant was a, a nationalistic covenant. It was based on the nation of Israel. And so everyone who was born into the nation of Israel was, by default, a covenant partner with God. Now, they could opt out of that by not having faith, but the assumption was that they were covenant partners. So the sign of the covenant was given to every male, and it, it was circumcision, cutting off the foreskin. Uh, Paul tells us that the sign of the covenant in the New Testament is baptism. But God's covenant is no longer uh, a nationalistic covenant, so it's no longer a covenant you can be born into. It's a covenant you have to choose. The one condition for being a covenant partner with God in the New Testament is that you've authentically surrendered your life to, to Jesus Christ. And so we reserve giving the sign of the covenant to those who have, in fact, surrendered their life, to those who are old enough to make a responsible decision to surrender their life. That's why we only baptize uh, people who are of age, who are old enough to, to make that decision. Now, Mary and Joseph circumcise the child, and then sometime later, they go to the temple, as was required by the law. And they do two things in the temple. 
First, they consecrate their child to God. They dedicate their child to God, which was simply a matter of taking a covenantal vow before God and before witnesses that you were, to the best of your ability and with God's help, going to raise this child in the ways of God. Now, we still practice that today. Uh, we have a service once every two, every two months or so where uh, new parents... Or sometimes it's parents who are new to the faith and, and haven't uh, dedicated their child. Or sometimes it's people who aren't new to the faith, but they just never knew about dedicating their child. But they, we, we have a service where they take a vow before God and before witnesses that to the best of their ability and with God's help, they're going to raise this child in the ways of God. It's a very biblical thing to do. The second thing they do is they engage in these purification rites where they sacrifice uh, 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 two pigeons or two doves. Actually, the law, if you look at it in Exodus 13, the law requires them to sacrifice a lamb and a dove or a lamb and a pigeon. But for poor people, the law made an exception um, and said that since lambs tended to be expensive, you could, if you couldn't afford it, you could sacrifice two pigeons. Um, and that's what Mary and Joseph do because they are very, very poor. I want us to focus our attention on these pigeons. And I want to ask a question that may at first seem rather trivial, but in fact, I believe if we, if we worship God with our minds and think through this, this uh, pigeon, we'll uncover what is possibly the most profound revelation in the Bible. It's also, I believe, one of the most misunderstood and underappreciated uh, revelations of the Bible. The question I want to ask is, is simply this. Why did the, the pigeons have to die? Uh, Mary gives birth to the son, and so two pigeons got to lose their life, in, in a rather unpleasant way, mind you. Uh, they would, uh, one of the pigeons, according to the law, was to, have, to be ripped open and then have its guts poured out and then burned on this fire. The other pigeon was to have its head twisted off. Now, put yourself in the, pit, in the position of the poor pigeon. You know, like, oh, rats, another kid's born. We got to die. <laughs> die a horrible death. Why? The kid was born. Well, why? I don't know. It's just what the law requires. Why do these pigeons have to die? Um, and maybe it strikes me particularly hard because I'm an animal lover. I, 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 you know, some of you guys are rugged males and you're, you know, the, the Ted Nugent hunters, you know. And like to, that's fine. Bless you. Hallelujah. But I, I killed one animal in my life. I was a squirrel when I was 12 years old to show off to my brother and dad. I had a 22. And I cried. <laughs> I was like, oh, hi. And all of a sudden it occurred to me that this might be someone's mother. And that there's probably little, little squirrels back home waiting for their nuts. And they're not going to get them because I just killed the mother. And I all of a sudden, you know, so I've just, I'm one of these warm, sensitive uh, males. But uh, what? These pigeons. Poor pigeons. I like pigeons. They're cute animals as long as you don't, like, stand under them at crucial moments. Uh, which I did once in Israel. It was a bath but um, why do they have to die which is to, it, it, which is to raise this question if you read the Old Testament uh, a lot of animals died they were sacrificing animals all, all over the place uh, you know Leviticus Exodus you, you find sheep and goats and bulls and and pigeons and doves they're always being slaughtered and I want to know why what is the meaning of that and the reason that question is rather important is because it leads to, to this the way you understand the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament will affect the way you understand the sacrifice of Christ in the New Testament. To ask why did the animals have to die is to ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? And the way you answer that question 
can potentially affect your view of God. I could really uh, crystallize my, my question by asking this. Why does the Bible say in Hebrews chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins? What does that mean? That's what we're chewing on here uh, this morning. Now, the standard answer today, it's not the standard answer given throughout history. It really wasn't known at all as an answer until about the 11th and 12th century. And it didn't become a prevalent answer until the Reformation in the 15th and 16th century. But, But one standard answer today to this question is this. The animals in the Old Testament and Jesus Christ in the New Testament had to die to appease the wrath of God. The idea here is that God's vengeance burns towards sinners because they justly have offended his righteousness and his holiness and his wrath burns towards them. And so uh, the only way that we can avoid receiving the eternal hot wrath of God is for animals to be sacrificed in the New Testament and for Jesus to be sacrificed, or animals to be sacrificed in the Old Testament and Jesus to be sacrificed in the New Testament. The idea is that the animals, as it were, deflect the wrath of God away from us and onto themselves, and Jesus deflects or absorbs the wrath of God upon himself, away from ourselves, on himself, away from ourselves. And with this understanding, all of the substitutionary language you find in the Bible. Language like he died as our substitute, he died in our place, he was wounded for our transgressions. All of that beautiful language, what it is interpreted to mean is, Jesus received the punishment from the Father that we deserved. He absorbed the Father's wrath. God's wrath burned against Jesus in the New Testament and against animals in the Old Testament, and that's why they had to die. Now, we want to have an environment here. We've tried to cultivate an environment at Woodland Hills Church where it's okay to ask questions. And in fact, I believe that sometimes when you have questions about things, if you wrestle with it and probe it, you might, my experience has been that some of the most profound things in the Bible are only discovered by working at it, by wrestling with it. And I think this is is a prime case in point. I want to be honest with you here. I've had a covenant that I'm going to be honest uh, with with the people and, and, and be real with whatever questions I've got. And to be real with you is to say this. I don't get that. I have never really understood that. Now, some people think, well, you just think too much. Can't you just accept some things? And it's probably true. I'm a little obsessive-compulsive in the thought category. But as I said, sometimes the best nuggets in the Bible come because you wrestle with questions. Here's my questions. How How does killing a pigeon solve anything? If I'm guilty, then how does killing a pigeon make me less guilty? Now, some would say, well, no, the, the pigeon becomes guilty. So some of my guilt is transferred to the pigeon, and so the pigeon dies in my place. But is guilt the kind of thing that can be transferred? I did something wrong, and now the p- pigeon is guilty for it. That's just unusual. And if the pigeon really is guilty, does God really hate the pigeon? I, 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 the pigeon drives me nuts, slaughter the thing. Is that what's really going on? And if that is what's really going on, then I've got some other questions. For example, why sometimes do, do animals have to die when there isn't a sin committed? For example, in the case of the passage we're dealing with right here, uh, a pigeon, two pigeons die, but Mary didn't sin, did she? I mean, for crying out loud, she gave birth to Jesus, and God's the one who put the child in, you know, in her, and this child is the Son of God. How can the wrath of God be burning against Mary for giving birth to the Christ child? Whatever else is going on with this sacrifice, it doesn't seem like it was appeasing the wrath of God. 
Related questions are, are, are these. Um, why is it that sometimes in the Old Testament, uh, some sins don't require any sacrifice? Some sins only require a food sacrifice, a grain offering. But if, if the, the purpose of sacrifice was to appease the wrath of God, and the wrath of God can only be satisfied with a kill, then, then how could a food sacrifice ever compensate for that? In fact, in many cases, if you look at Leviticus 15, for example, even in, uh, with sins where a blood sacrifice is required, if you're too poor to afford the animal, you can just offer up some food. But if blood is necessary to appease the wrath of God, how can those exceptions be made? Here's another question. That has driven me crazy. Um, if God has to have a kill to appease his wrath, then, then does God ever really forgive? I, I'm just you know, thinking out loud here. If God always gets his due, his holiness has been offended, his righteousness has been offended, and there must be payment. If God always gets payment, then does he ever really forgive? Because forgiveness is about releasing a debt, right? Releasing a debt. But if God always gets paid, then he never really releases the debt. If I owe Bill $20 and Bill can't pay, so my rage is burning towards Bill, so John comes along and says, hey, don't kill Bill, here's your $20. Well, I didn't really forgive anybody. True, uh, Bill is off the hook, um, but, but I got my pay. And so does God really ever forgive anyone? Another way of asking this, am I driving you crazy yet? Another way of asking the question is to say this. Is there really something fundamentally wrong if God's wrath doesn't get vented on someone or something or other? Uh, the way it's sometimes spoken of is, is like, it's, it's like there's be something fundamentally wrong with the universe if God's wrath didn't get vented. Uh, God has to express his wrath. Now, a part of me wonders if that isn't, you know, well, dysfunctional. Okay, here's the picture I get. Here's the picture I get. I remember my dad one time, my mom and dad were always fighting. Remember that, Debbie? Uh, they threw dishes. They were, it was an unpleasant warfare marriage. And uh, uh, one time I remember this. You might remember, my, my sister's up here, so she, you might remember this. Uh, they're in the living room, and they're just, my dad was hot. Oh, he was so mad. I think he wanted to kill my stepmother. I think he wanted to kill my stepmother most of the time, but this time in particular. Uh, now, fortunately, he didn't do it. But he's so mad, he wanted to strangle her. So what he did is, do you remember our fa that fat cat? Where's Debbie? Uh, the, that big fat cat we had? Well, he turns around. My dad hated this cat. And he's not going to take it out on my stepmother. He's going to take it on the cat. He turns around, sees the cat, and whoosh, a drop punt. And the cat's you know, up in the air. Okay, now here's the thing. Was, was my father reflecting a little bit of the image of God when he did that? I, I'm, just, I, I'm just thinking, you know, he, I, my stepmother didn't get it, but the cat got it. I'm just asking questions out loud. And here's what I'm really concerned with, okay? This is kind of deep theological stuff, perhaps, and you can think whatever theological thoughts you want, but what I'm really concerned with is our picture of God. How does this affect your picture of God? Because it can have some negative repercussions on your picture of God. And as I've said over and over again here, your, your real representation of God is going to determine the quality of your life and the quality of your relation with God and the quality of you as a kingdom servant. So your picture of God is so important. And I worry that this kind of language, this kind of thinking, can affect our picture of God. I remember hearing a sermon when I was a, a, you know, a, a relatively new Christian. And the preacher was saying, Jesus is the dam that holds back the wrath of God. 
Jesus is the dam that holds back the flood of God's wrath towards humanity. So here's humanity down here, and there's a big giant dam there. And it's like the, the, the father is just like, I get a picture of like a, a referee breaking up a fight. And the one guy's saying, I'll kill him, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. And the ref's saying, no, don't do it. Well, here's Jesus. The, the father's like saying, my wrath burns. i got to express my wrath. And Jesus is saying, don't do it. Take me instead. Kill me instead. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, wait, 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 wait. I, I'm really glad Jesus is there. But I'm not so sure about the Father. Uh, the Father is burning with rage towards me, and Jesus is there not to reveal the love of the Father, but rather to hold back the wrath of the Father, or to, to you know, satiate, to appease the wrath of the Father. And what that can do, it doesn't have to do this, but it can create a sort of dualistic view of God, where Jesus becomes part of the revelation of God, but not the whole revelation of God. Jesus reveals sort of God's nice side, but he's also got this wrathful side. And uh, that explains why, uh, for the last 400 years in particular, uh, there's been a lot of people, moi included, who have had this sort of love for Jesus, but the Father is just sort of, you know... I might just be the cat that gets kicked, you know, if, if, if he's having a bad day or something. I, there's a mistrust. Uh, it comes out in some theology. John Calvin, for example, said that Jesus was the revelation of God. But there's this, this hidden side of God, this dark side of God, this abysmal side of God. He even called it the, the center where God makes a, a horrible decree. It was terrible, a terrible sight of God, where God, even though he reveals himself as being loving in Jesus, that's not the whole story, because there's also this raging father back here, and the father decrees from all eternity before the world ever begins that the majority of people will suffer in eternal nightmarish hell. So you got the, the nice Jesus dying on the cross for some people, but then there's this wrath that, that, that he's sort of suppressing there. That also explains why I think uh, a lot of people have this tendency to interpret natural disasters, although they're not natural, it's part of the warfare we're in, but they interpret disasters as expressions of the wrath of God. It's like Jesus is there to appease the wrath of God, to satiate, to placate God's anger. Uh, he's the dam, but there's leaks in the dam. And once in a while, phew, it just sort of comes out, and so God sends a hurricane because he's just mad at sinners, or sends a, a stroke on a prime minister, for example, uh, you know, to punish him. And, and he just, he's got to express this wrath. There's a lot of questions about this that have led me to wonder, is that really a, a, a biblical teaching? Let, let, let's have another look at it. Let's, let's chew on this. We may end up saying, yeah, that's just the way it is and live with it. But maybe th there's an alternative way of understanding this. And this is what I want to present to you this morning. I want us to chew on this. A different way of understanding why the pigeon had to die, why Christ had to die, and that can affect our view of God. Now, to, uh, to express this alternative way of understanding why the pigeon had to die... I want to turn to uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, in his Chronicles of Narnia series. How many of you have either read the book or seen the movie? A good percentage of people. If you haven't read the book or seen the movie or even read the whole series, I recommend you doing it. It is a masterpiece. Well, here's the story. And, and we couldn't get film clips, but we did get some audio, because uh, it's still out in theaters, but we did get some audio tapes of the book, so we're going to play a few of these. Uh, but here's the story. As most of you know, uh, the kids discover Narnia, or at least uh, Lucy and Edmund discover Narnia, and Edmund then encounters the witch, and Edmund, because he wants to uh, you know, be above his siblings and because he's addicted to this magical taffy, he betrays his two sisters and his brother. He, uh, he, he turns them over, as it were, to the, the wicked witch. Um, 
And uh, as the witch represents sort of the devil. Uh, because he gives in to the witch's deception, he becomes a slave of the witch. He's condemned under the witch's power. But Aslan, who is the loving, powerful Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's able to send his army and rescue Edmund from the witch. Now, when that happens, the witch makes her way to uh, Aslan's camp, where Edmund resides. And then they have a very interesting conversation. Listen to what the witch says to Aslan here. You at least know the magic which the Emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery, I have a right to a kill. Oh, so that's how you came to imagine yourself a queen, eh? Because <laughs> you were the Emperor's hangman, I see. Peace, Beaver. Yes, yeah, certainly. And so... That human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. All right. Here's, here's what's going on. There is in Narnia, as there is in the real world, deep magic. It's magic that was put in place by the emperor. It is the moral order of the universe. It, it holds Narnia together just like the moral order of the universe holds the creation together. Uh, if it's not obeyed, the witch reminds Aslan, Narnia will fall apart. The magic reflects the holy and just character of the emperor, who is God the Father. The, the, the magic, the moral order of Narnia stipulates that, to use biblical language, the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6. Uh, it stipulates that all traitors forfeit their life to the witch, the cosmic hangman, if you will, or hangwoman, uh, the devil. Uh, now, Aslan loves Edmund. Aslan forgives Edmund. Aslan wants to protect Edmund. But Aslan can't simply wave aside the just requirements of deep magic. So what he does, surprisingly enough, is he offers himself up to the witch in Edmund's place. And the witch, uh, seeing that Aslan is a far greater prize than the snivelly Edmund, and the witch believing that if she can kill Aslan, she'll be able to reign over Narnia without opposition, she accepts Aslan's offer. Aslan will die in Edmund's place. Aslan sneaks away that night, though Lucy and, and Susan follow him from a distance, and uh, Aslan makes his way to the witch's domain. And there, her minions, the demonic creatures that serve her, they torment Aslan, they mock Aslan, and then the witch slays Aslan on the stone tablet. The stone tablet represents sort of the seat of justice in the universe, where the just requirements of the deep magic of Narnia are, 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 are satisfied. Lucy and Susan look on with absolute horror because they don't know what's going on as they see Aslan killed. The witch and her minions uh, finally leave the scene and Lucy and Susan go and grieve over the slain Aslan just as the Bible says the, the women did with regard to Jesus Christ. But then, and I don't mean to ruin the story for those who haven't read it yet or seen it yet, but I'm going to. Um, uh, then there's a rumbling, an earthquake, just like in the Bible, and the stone tablet is, is, is broken in two, uh, just like the Bible says, the curtain was rent in two, and Aslan rises from the dead. And the girls are overjoyed. Someone goes, yay. Uh, the, 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 the girls are overjoyed, but they're also bewildered. Like, what's going on? What does all this mean? 
And then uh, uh, Aslan responds to Lucy's question this way. Oh, Aslan. But what does it all mean? It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. All right. <clears throat> now, why didn't God give me a voice like that? <laughs> give me this little weak, pipsqueaky, squeaky voice. Anyways, my, in my opinion, this is one of the most profound things ever written. It's one of the reasons why I just love C.S. Lewis. It's, it's profound. The movie is one of the most profound movies ever made. If you haven't been to it yet, I encourage you to, to, to see it. It expresses what I regard to be one of the most profound and underappreciated truths of the entire Bible. And it all deals with the pigeon. There's three biblical truths I want to bring out that are illustrated by this story. Truth number one. There is, in fact, a deep magic. The Bible calls it the law which stipulates that the wages of sin is death, and it can't simply be waved aside. It must be dealt with. As C.S. Lewis notes, this magic, this law, was put in place at the foundation of creation, which is why it says in Genesis chapter 2, uh, the Lord says, in the day that you eat of it, in the day that you, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you turn from me and try to be God like me, you will surely die. Because God is the source of life, and to turn from the source of life is, by definition, to bring death upon oneself. This is the first meaning of the sacrificial pigeon. It's the meaning of all the Old Testament sacrifices. They're vivid ways of God expressing uh, and reminding the Israelites of the truth that the wages of sin is death. To break covenant with me, because everything in the Bible is understood in covenantal language. To not walk with me, to break covenant, is to bring death upon yourself. And so the sacrificed animals were vivid ways of reminding the children of Israel about that, the importance of walking with God. They do express, in one sense, the wrath of God, but expresses the wrath of God not against people, but against sin. God's rage burns towards sin because God's love burns towards sinners. And God knows that sin separates us from him, which means that we die, and God doesn't want us to die. So far from appeasing the wrath of God, the sacrificed animals express the love of God towards people and therefore the wrath of God towards sin. Second truth that is revealed in, uh, second biblical truth that's revealed in uh, Lewis's tale. Sin not only brings death upon ourselves, but even more fundamentally, it brings death upon ourselves because it brings us under Satan's dominion. That's why the Bible says that, the, that uh, whoever sins becomes a slave. When we sin, we forfeit our life according to the moral order of the universe, which is good and just in and of itself. But, but we forfeit our lives. We become the prey of the enemy. Um, uh, 
Paul says in Romans 7 that the law is good and holy and just. There's nothing wrong with it. It reflects the character of God. But sin and the power of sin, which is Satan, uses it against us. Because of the fall, we come under, now the devil uses the moral order of the universe, which is good in and of itself, to, to, to condemn us. Because we put ourselves under her authority. This is what we need to see. It is the devil who uses the law against us. It is the devil, the Bible says, who is called the accuser. This is what he does. Revelation 12.10. His name means accuser. The one who stands against us, accusing us. Uh, the devil is the, if you've ever seen Les Miserables, he's the uh, Inspector Chavette uh, of, of, of the universe. Uh, he, he is the one who demands a kill. It's not God who demands a kill. It's Satan who demands a kill. It is Satan who brings condemnation. It's Satan who brings guilt upon our heads. It's Satan who drives us into the ground, but all because we have volitionally and voluntarily turned from God and put ourselves under his authority. And were that the last word to be said, we would all go into eternity in a state of death. But thank God it's not the final word. There's a third truth that is revealed, uh, biblical truth that is revealed in the Chronicles of Narnia, and it is this. While there is a deep magic which is the moral order of the universe, there is, praise God, a deeper magic still. And it's about self-sacrificial love, as Aslan explains to Lucy. Self-sacrificial love is a deeper magic than the law. Before the law, before creation, before time as we know it, before anything was created, there was lodged in the deepest recesses of God's heart the deepest magic there is. It's a magic, the magic of unfathomable, unsurpassable, unimprovable, unconditional, undying, unwavering love. It is a love that is greater than the law and therefore a love that is greater than guilt and a love that is greater than condemnation, a love that is greater than the devil himself. It's a love that says, most remarkably, a love of the all-holy God who says, I will do whatever it takes, go to any extreme, sink to the lowest depths, I will do whatever it takes to restore fellowship with covenant breakers. I will pay any price. I will pay the consequences for any sin in order to have fellowship with covenant breakers. The deepest magic there is is a love that is, uh, is synonymous with God himself. It goes back before the dawn of time. Um, and, 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 and so when Aslan dies, he expresses that deepest magic. And it's in expressing the deepest magic there is that frees Edmund when he dies. Edmund is freed. The stone tablet of justice is broken. Edmund is set free. Uh, he's declared innocent and righteous. He's reconciled with Aslan. And the, the principalities and powers, the witch and her minions, are absolutely defeated. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that is so biblical, it is not funny. Let me just give you a couple of passages that show how biblical this is. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this. When you were dead, you Edmonds, we're all Edmonds. When we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all of our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the deep magic. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. The stone tablet was broken. And then when he did that, he disarmed. 
Stole the ammunition from the rulers and the authorities. Now note, who's the one who's using the law as ammunition against us? It's not God. It's the principalities and powers, the rulers and authority. So when Jesus dies in our place, he disempowers them. He steals their ammunition. In fact, he, the Bible says here he makes a public example of them. The word can be translated a laughing stock. And thereby he triumphs over them. Here, here's, here's, here, here's how it goes down. Lord, give me succinctness here because this is just so beautiful. Lewis nails it. Um, the witch thought she was gaining an advantage by killing Aslan because now she thought she could reign uh, over Narnia without opposition. She was wrong. Uh, uh, the whole plan backfires because the sacrifice... She didn't understand the deepest magic there is because she's got a cold heart. She doesn't understand love. Uh, the devil and the demons, they understand law really, really good. They are the inspector chevettes of, of the cosmos, but they don't got a clue about love, and love is greater than the law. But see, they can't look back that far. They can't see that. And so uh, uh, they, they crucify, they, they kill Aslan, but thereby bring upon themselves their own defeat. This is so biblical. It says in Colossians chapter 2, that if the princes of this world, the rulers of this wor world, and that's the same word, the archon, that Jesus uses when he describes the devil, if the rulers of this world had understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, they didn't understand the wisdom of God. They knew Jesus was the Lord of glory, but they didn't understand why he was here. They didn't get that. Why? Because when it comes to love, they're really stupid. They don't get love. They don't get love motivation. So they, don't see, they see the deep magic of the moral order, and they want to now use it in their favor, but they don't see that there's still a deeper magic. But when they orchestrate to kill Christ, they play into the Father's wisdom. They play into the Father's hand. And so Jesus it, it, it dies. And when he dies, just like Aslan did, he satisfies the just requirement of deep magic. The stone tablet is broken. The condemnation is done. The curse is done. The slavery to the enemy is done. Everything the devil ever had on us is annihilated. It's, it, it, it's, it's done away. It's nailed to the cross. We are set free. Uh, we, we Edmonds are declared righteous and holy and spotless before him the devil's got nothing on us anymore and that manifestation that manifestation of outrageous unsurpassable incomprehensible love a love that is able to satisfy the law and set criminals free that manifestation of love destroys the devils destroys his, his, his minions and, and, and frees Narnia once and for all so we Edmonds and we Lucys and we Susans and we Peters can reign in Narnia which was God's goal, goal all along praise God C.S. Lewis nails it. <sighs> okay, so wrap this up. Jesus died in our place. He died in our place. But he didn't do it to appease the wrath. Someone's got to die. He didn't do it to appease the wrath of the Father. He did it to express the love of the Father. Look, at Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. John 14. If you see me, you see the Father. He doesn't say you see the good side of the Father. You see part of the Father. He doesn't say... He says, why do you ask? Show us the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. There's not a malicious, malevolent, vicious Father hiding somewhere in the background. No, I really am like this, he's saying. Jesus dies in our place, but not to appease the wrath of the Father, but to free us from the wrath of the devil. He, he is wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, but it's not to placate the Father's wrath. It's to express the Father's love, express the Father's wrath towards sin, as a way of expressing his love towards sinners in order to free us. So let's come back full circle and end with the pigeon. Why did the pigeon have to die? 
Well, the pigeon dies to one, express deep magic, and number two, to express a still deeper magic. The sacrificed animals of the Old Testament, they're perpetual reminders that the wages of sin is death. Walk in covenant relationship with the one who is life itself. And so it wasn't just when people sinned, it was after the birth of a child. And all throughout Israel, there are these institutional reminders of how crucial it is that we walk with God. But the second thing is this. All of those Old Testament sacrifices point forward to a time. And when Mary offers up the sacrificed pigeons, they're pointing forward to a time, which in her case will be very shortly, a time when God himself will become the pigeon and will die in our place to free us from the condemnation we brought upon ourselves and from the, the, the slavery to the devil that we brought upon ourselves and thereby defeat the devil himself. There's a deep magic, but there's a still deeper magic. And in the end, what the Lord is saying is that love always conquers evil and frees criminals uh, to be reconciled to God. And it's the most beautiful, profound revelation in the entire Bible. And it's all right there in the pigeon. <laughs> it's all there in the pigeon. I, I end with this question. We've got we to end here. But, but here, here's my question to you. Uh, first of all, I, 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 those, there are some here who uh, maybe you're not right with Aslan right now. Uh, you know, I, 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 Edmund could have ran back to the devil. He had to accept what Aslan did uh, was really for him. Have you really accepted that what Jesus did on Calvary was for you, for you personally? And have you then surrendered your life to Aslan? A Edmund had to say, I'm going to stop following the devil, uh, the witch, I'm going to start following Aslan. Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you allowed him to recruit you to be part of the war that's going on right now? If you haven't done that, I want to encourage you, this service, as we're dismissed, to come up here to my right and your left. There'll be a person who would just love to explain to you how to get started in that walk. Nothing magical, no, no magical formula, no genie you rub to, to become saved or something like that. There's a commitment you make in your heart, a vow that you take to get started in this. And so if you want to get some information about that, I encourage you to come forward up here, and this person would love to explain it to you. My second question is this. Do you really, really, really believe Jesus when he says, if you see me, you see the Father, period? Do you really believe that? Or is there any part of your mind that still has this I ain't too sure about God the Father thing? Is there any part of you that sees maybe a polarity in God, a dark streak in God, a malevolent streak in God? I, there is wrath in God, but I want us to see that if God's wrath burns hot, it's because his love burns even hotter. You see? And, and if, if, you, if, if you look to Christ as your picture of God, that is your picture of God. Stop right there. Is that your picture of God? Because you will be as vibrant and as passionate and as kingdomized as your picture of God is Christ-centered. And I encourage you to root out all areas of your thinking that have been polluted by the enemy in terms of your picture of God. Uh, would the prayer team come forward as I close in this prayer? Father, I pray for any who might be here right now who are not surrendered to you. Lord, will you call them up here and, and just have them uh, commit their lives to you and start walking the kingdom walk? 
I thank you, Lord God, that you are, in fact, this is what is uh, the final thing to be said about you. You're altogether lovely, altogether beautiful, altogether pure. You're altogether holy, Lord God. And we just thank you, we kingdom people, thank you for dying in our place and satisfying the just requirements of your own moral order that we could be forgiven, that we could be set free, that we could live liberated lives, Lord God. Help us to walk out of here with that mindset, Lord God, with that heart to do battle on your behalf, the battle of love, to spread the good news to our neighbors, our family, our workers, and every other person we come in contact with. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said one last time. Amen. 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 If you have any need whatsoever, you want to come forward for prayer, I encourage you to do that. Uh, these people will be glad to, uh, to pray with you. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.